which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Lord, for the next few moments, would you teach us? Would you teach us by the example of your Son, in whose name we pray? Amen. Amen. Good morning. How are we? Good. Let me grab my Bible here. Thank you, guys. Well, we are in the next to last sermon in a series that we're calling The Dash. It's a focus on the life of Jesus, a focus on the dash between Jesus' birth and his death. We're attempting to learn from the everyday life of Jesus, not not the big story of his birth and not the magnificent story of his passion and his death, his his crucifixion and resurrection. We'll get to Easter. It's coming soon, although it's later in April this year. We'll get there. Right now, we're trying to focus on the everyday life of Jesus. What can we learn from the from the living Jesus so that our living would be more glorifying to our Father as well. And so we are now in week six. We're going to do one more week on it and then move on to something different. Let me remind you where we've been. Week one, we said that uh, Jesus' life was patiently obedient. Patiently obedient. Meaning that he didn't come onto the scene and jump right to business. He, he did exactly what the Father wanted him to do when he wanted him to do it. He was patient. He waited until he was about 30 years old to step onto the ministry scene. And so he didn't get ahead of the plan of the Father. The second week we talked about him being humbly obedient. What we meant by that was that if you look at the everyday life of Jesus, he was humble. He was God in the flesh, right? We get that. But he humbled himself when he came to earth and he took on the form of a man. He took on the form of a son, not just the son of the Father, but the son of Joseph and Mary. And he submitted himself to them. And he was a model in every way of humility. Not only that, in week three, we talked about him being simply obedient. By simply, we meant that he didn't do anything more than what the father had asked him to do. And so not only did he wait until the father's plan came to fruition and he had to step onto the scene so that he could go to his death. Not only did he wait and not only was he humble in the waiting, but he was simple in his obedience, meaning that he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything more or less than just what the father's plan was. Not only that, we talked about him being completely obedient completely obedient. And then last week we talked about him being practically obedient. What did we mean by that? Practically obedient. We talked about the fact that he he didn't just, when you think about the life of Jesus, he, he didn't have some life separate or all that different from the life you and I have to live. All right. Granted, the culture was different. But when we think about Jesus, you don't have to put him in a monastery somewhere. He wasn't a monk that lived separate. And that lived a life that was, that was irrelevant to our living. He lived a practical, for all intents and purposes, he lived a practical life. I mean, he, he, he did some of the very same things that we do. He enjoyed some of the very thing, same things that we're able to enjoy. And so we, we looked at some passages, we looked at some stories of the life of Jesus that talked about how he, he laughed, he, he played with children. He went to parties. He he went to weddings. He enjoyed life. He enjoyed good food, good friends. He enjoyed family. He practically, as best he could, living this life here on earth, he was an example to us in that he, he just practically lived and enjoyed life. This week, I want to springboard off of that a little bit. And I want to say that Jesus 
he was not only practically obedient and all the other things that we've said about him, but he was passionately obedient. Passionately obedient. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is very simple. If you look at the life of Jesus, in the Gospels especially, you find that, that Jesus was zealous. He was not a recluse. Jesus and his, his living was not a life, again, locked away somewhere in a monastery, and we never saw him get excited about anything. Jesus was passionate. And remember, what we're attempting to do here is not just look at the life of Jesus, but to look at the life of Jesus, his everyday living, and to see what we can gain from that. Something, God, that can tell me how I'm supposed to get through and live my dash between my birth and my, my terminating date here on earth. How do these things impact me? So I think it's helpful to know that Jesus, as he was living his dash, he lived it passionately. I mean, he, he, he poured himself into his life. Not only did he have fun, but I want to focus on two areas today, springboarding off of the fact that he lived practically and that he enjoyed life, but that he also lived zealously. He lived passionately. I want to show you a couple stories and a couple examples, many examples actually, uh, where Jesus was not only... Not only passionate, but we find it exemplified in the fact that we, we see him get mad and we see him at moments very sad. Did you know that about Jesus? When we talk about the fact that he was passionate in life, you, you can see Jesus pour himself into life fully. Anybody see, I, I noticed yesterday, Corbett and I went and saw the nut job and we saw that the, uh, the son of God is out now. Anybody see, anybody see the son of God? The nut job, by the way, it's about a squirrel and you know, he's on a nut hunt, etc., it was pretty good. Um, I, but I saw, and, and, I, and I saw some folks that I know going into the Son of God. Anybody, anybody see that yet? No? All right, go see it. Were you all at the nut job instead as well? No? All right. Uh, I'm curious about the Son of God and how it portrays Jesus, you know, as we're going through this dash. I wonder, I wonder what kind of personality they give him. Today I want, I want to focus on the fact that Jesus was passionate. We find in some places he got mad, and that's... That's interesting. And we find in other places he got very sad. And that's interesting. I think both of them teach us how to live. Jesus sometimes is portrayed in films and in popular culture as just walking around disconnected, um, ambiguous about everything, and just kind of waiting around to be needed. I'm not, sure that's, I'm not sure that's a correct portrait of his personality. We're going to look at him being mad. He overthrew tables. It's probably the most popular story of the, the explosiveness of Jesus' anger. He overthrew the tables of the money changers in the temple, Matthew 21, 12, and 13. We're going to see that he, he goes to the other extreme and gets very sad. He was moved to tears at the news of Lazarus' death in John 11. The Bible says, in fact, many times that Jesus was moved with compassion. And we're going to look at some of those stories. But first, let's look at Jesus' being mad. Uh, Matthew 21, 12 and 13, you, you know the story. He goes into the temple, his father's house, and he finds that people are buying and selling. Um, what you need to know about that story is that what was going on was not, not necessarily wrong, but the way it was being carried out was wrong. Uh, like many things in the nation of Israel, it had been, it had been twisted and polluted and perverted 
The things that were happening there were actually instructed by God in the Old Testament that they could happen in those ways. Uh, For an example, uh, so that you understand the story clearly, uh, when you went to the temple at certain times a year, you were supposed to bring sacrifices. But if you were an Israelite and you lived a very far distance away, there were provisions in the Old Testament that you didn't have to bring your own ox. Okay, for example, you could actually come to the temple and you could buy an ox there and then you could sacrifice it. And so you could just pack your money in your wallet and come to town and it would be easier for you. God, God was thoughtful and he gave some provisions in that way. And so that's part of the reason that the money changers were there. But but by all indications, they weren't supposed to be doing it in the way they were doing it. They weren't supposed to be in the location of the of the actual temple that they were in. It, it was all just wrong when Jesus showed up and it made him it made him mad. It made him mad. And there was nothing in the sinless heart and mind of Jesus Christ that we find fault in him for getting mad. I mean, that's a, that's a study all on its own. Uh, Ephesians tells us that it's okay to get mad, right? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The command is not to avoid anger or to suppress it or ignore it, but to deal with it properly and in a timely manner. Uh, it's said in Mark 3, 5, we may have that scripture, that when the Pharisees refused to answer Jesus' questions, he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed in their stubborn hearts. There's a way that Jesus got angry. Here's the point. There's a way that Jesus got angry that was completely justifiable and that, and that was faultless and that was without sin, Right? In the life of Jesus, we've already talked about how he lived every aspect, every part and every season of his life without falling to the temptation of any sin. And so when it says that Jesus got angry and he flipped over the tables in the temple, we have to remember that in that very moment, he still remained sinless. How in the world did he do that? I mean, when you and I get angry, it doesn't, it doesn't probably read the same way, does it? On the sin meter. And he did it. One commentator gave gave six indications, six characteristics of Jesus becoming angry that are helpful to us. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, the anger of Jesus had proper motivation. In other words, he was angry for the right reasons. When you're angry, are you always angry for the right reasons? Probably not. When I'm angry, very often I get angry for the wrong reasons. When Jesus got angry, he got angry for right reasons. There was something going awry in the way things were being carried out at those money-changing tables. It was false motives, false advertisement, false something going on that Jesus didn't like. That's another sermon for another day. But, but Jesus had the right motivation. What was happening was wrong. It was in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong way. It was wrong. So Jesus had the right and proper motivation in his anger. Number two, his anger had the proper focus. He was not angry at God or at the weaknesses of others. And that's how we very often handle things, right? When we get angry... Something goes wrong in our life, we, we tend to turn our anger towards God. Those of us who say we love Him the most, we, we, we very often like to shake our fist at God. And Jesus didn't do that, certainly. He knew who was at fault here. He didn't blame the things that were going wrong at the church on God. Interesting. His anger targeted sinful behavior and true injustice in that moment. Number three, His anger had the proper supplement. What does that mean? Mark 3, 5 says that his anger was attended by grief over the Pharisees. Lack of faith. Jesus' anger stemmed from his love. So after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. You see, you see the heart of God here in his anger? 
His anger came because he was grieved for them. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out. And his hand was, do we have the next verse? No? It's all right. Restored. Jesus' anger stemmed from love for the Pharisees and concern for their spiritual condition. The point is, is that Jesus' anger had nothing to do with hatred over the individuals. Very often our hatred has to do with the individual, doesn't it? It's all about the individual. Jesus didn't have hate in his heart in those moments. He was angry for the right reasons. He had a proper focus, proper motivation, and proper proper supplement. And by supplement, we mean that his anger was accompanied by his love, not hatred. His anger had the, had the proper control on it as well. Do we, are we always controlled in our anger? No. Jesus was justifiable in his anger because he had the proper control. He was never out of control, even in his wrath. The temple leaders did not like his cleansing the temple, but he had, he had done nothing sinful. He controlled his emotions. His emotions did not control him. Number five, his anger had the proper duration. How about that? Sometimes we allow our anger to go longer than it needs to go. Yeah, this, very often our anger turns into bitterness. It does. No indication of Scripture that that happened for Jesus. The duration of his, his anger, of him being mad, not only was it, was it correctly focused, but it was correctly timed. He didn't, he didn't carry a grudge. He didn't hold it against them. He didn't carry it beyond its necessity. His anger had a proper duration. He dealt with each situation properly and he handled anger in its good time. Last one. His anger had had the proper result. What do you mean by that? Jesus' anger had the inevitable consequence of godly action. Jesus' anger, as with all his emotions, was held in check by the Word of God. Thus, Jesus' response was always to accomplish the Father's will. So as we look look at the life of Jesus, even in in his passionate moments, even when he gets really mad, he does it without sin. I don't know about you, but there, there are many times in my life when, when, when I want to get mad, but I, I don't do it without sin. I mess up somewhere in those, in those six areas. Maybe I don't have the proper control, the proper duration of my anger. Maybe the results aren't what they should be. The results aren't God intended. Maybe my focus is not on the right thing. Maybe I'm more upset at the person than I am on the, on the sinfulness. Maybe my motivation is just wrong from the very beginning. Maybe there is no supplement of, of, of righteousness or love. But Jesus always had all of those things. So anytime you find him in Scripture, in his living out, in his dash, you find him express, and, and you find it a couple other places. You can look in John as well. It says that he gets whips and he chases the animals out. You find that he does it, he does it very intentionally and under control. And so, there's a lesson there. What I don't want you to miss, this isn't just a lesson on how to be angry and not sin. I mean, that's probably really a sermon for another day. And there's a lot more that would need to go into that sermon. But I say all this, and I give you all these examples, and I give you all these control factors, just to help you understand the the, the simple fact that in Jesus' life, listen, he he didn't walk around disconnected from things. When the right things presented themselves that would justifiably make the Son of God angry, they did. And He did. 
As Christians, what what does that tell us about our living out? We're not to be disconnected either. There are things, there are things that with the right motive, the right controls, the right, the right duration, all, all that that we just spoke of, there are things that should, that should make us mad, believers. Not mad to the point of sin where we, where we get outside all those controls. But listen, we, we're not to live this disconnected, uh, dispassionate, if that's even a word, life in our Christianity. Our, our dash should have some moments where we look at life, where we look at circumstances, where we look at situations, and we get mad. We get righteously mad. We get justifiably upset. For Jesus, it was because the glory of the Father was being slighted. And that's a good reason. Amen? For those of us who are believers, there should, be, there should be some times in our life where we look at the circumstances of life and say, that that, that slights the glory of God and that should, that should justifiably anger us. It, it did Jesus. I, I think we need to see that in Scripture. Jesus got mad at the right time in the right way, handled it the right way, put an end to it when it needed to end. Uh, there was one, there's one part of the story of Jesus, you know, running, running these guys, flipping the tables, uh, running the animals out. It, it says, it's interesting, and in, in, I think it's in the passage in John, in that account, where it says that there were even guys who were selling doves. And as you can imagine, doves would have to be in cages, right? And so something about, about that situation Jesus didn't like either. And he said, get those things out of here. And one of the commentators made the note that Jesus kind of, he chased all the other animals out. He flipped over the money tables, or, or maybe they were just money boxes where he just dumped out uh, their, their, their change-making boxes because what they would do was when you came, you were to pay a tithe. And it was, it was a, a, a type of money that not everybody had. And so people would come and they would exchange their currency for the other currency and they were making money off of that. And so he got mad at how they were abusing that system and he, and he, and he threw that over and he just ran all that stuff out. But it says very interestingly that he told the guys with the doves, hey, get those things out of here. And one commentator says, he said, look at the control of Jesus. He didn't just open the door and let the doves fly away so that those guys would lose all those doves. He told them, take them out of here. I thought, wow, certainly Jesus was in complete control. He was in complete control. But he wasn't disconnected at all. He was passionate. He got mad. Let's talk for a moment about where we find Jesus being sad. Because it, it seems to me that um, it's very helpful. It's very helpful not just to know that, yeah, Jesus got mad and it was okay. And that doesn't just mean that I can get mad any way I want, right? We get that. But it's helpful for me to know that there's a right time and a right place to get mad. But it may be even more helpful for me to know that Jesus himself was sad. Yeah? Anybody else ever experience sadness and wonder if there was any, any redeeming factor over your sadness? I think if we see Jesus being sad in Scripture, there's a part of us that knows in the living of our life, sadness is sometimes the right answer. The right answer. Not only that, but it, but it paints a whole different portrait of who Jesus was in His living. For me, it helps, it helps me to know that Jesus in His living was once again not a disconnected angelic being just you know floating through his time here on earth. I mean Jesus lived it. And when and when the opportunity arose where there was sadness to be had, Jesus took part in it. 
Amen. I mean, he was not some holy other being, so much God that he was not completely human as well. You all know the verse, Jesus wept. You know it most likely as a trivia question to what is the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But it's not, it's not the least weighty by any means. The fact that Jesus wept tells us something. It's Matthew 9, 36 is another great example. He was moved with compassion. Go back. Do we have a 32 in that uh, verse, guys? Got some previous verses there, Mike? No? All right. It's the story of, of Lazarus' death, and you know it well. And um, the women came to Jesus. They informed him of his death. And it's interesting. As it reads, it's not just that Jesus was upset because his friend Lazarus was dead. But as it reads, it's, it's as if, um, well, here it is. Therefore, when Mary came when Jesus, uh, where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Keep going. Then he said to his disciples, that's, that's, not it. that's 37. No, is there not a 33 there? How about I just read it? Where are we at? Everybody know where Matthew is? We're going to go old school here, and you have to actually open this paper book. This is why I don't like to use a screen, because it has a mind of its own sometimes. How about you look in your own Bible? Matthew 9, 32. Story of Lazarus. And as they were going, that's not it. Where am I at? 936. All right, I'm I'm, uh, mixing up my verses here for my paper. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, The passage I was speaking of is, where is it? John 11, 32, 36. You got that one? All right, that's what we read. You got 33? No? All right, so we'll turn. John 11. You got it? So when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and was troubled. You got 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And then they said to him, Lord, come and see me. The, the point, the reason I wanted you to read that is, is what made Jesus weep was not just necessarily the fact that Lazarus was gone. What else made Jesus weep was their weeping, was their heartache over the thing. You see, Jesus was moved to compassion, not just because he had lost Lazarus. I mean, he knew where Lazarus was, right? I mean, there's an aspect, I'm sure, that Jesus was going to miss Lazarus, but, but Jesus was moved with compassion over our heartache. He was moved over our heartache. Let me give you some other examples. Uh, one commentator would say that that verse, Matthew 9:36, I referred to earlier, that he was moved with compassion, that that. That phrase is used over and over in Scripture. I'm going to give you a few examples of it. But that that phrase, he was moved with compassion, would sum up really, in all of Scripture, it would sum up the whole character of Christ. Jesus, if you look back over the whole story of Jesus, he, he, he volunteered to come to earth because he was moved with compassion. He came, humbled himself because he was moved by compassion. He lived this life moved by compassion, story after story after story. He went to the cross because he was moved with compassion. He, he died for us because he was moved with compassion. And even now that he's gone, he, he's left us with several indication that he's still moved with compassion for us. He's given us his word. He's given us uh, ministers uh, to help share his word and teach us his word. And he's given us 
He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's left His Holy Spirit with us here. So from beginning to end, Jesus' life is a summary of that, of that phrase, moved with compassion. Let me give you a few examples here. Matthew twenty thirty one. I think we have that story on the screen. Let me summarize. Two blind men sat by the wayside begging, and when they heard that Jesus passed by, they said something like this, O Lord, thou Son of David, have mercy on us. The story goes that Jesus stood still. He called them, questioned them, and they seemed to have had full conviction that he both could and would restore their sight. So Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes, and immediately they received sight. Another story of a leper, Mark 1.41. This poor guy was covered with sad and foul disease. And he said this to Jesus, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. If you, if you want to, you can do it. He had full faith in Christ's ability, but he wasn't quite sure if Jesus would do it. And our Savior looked at him, and he doesn't, he doesn't rebuke him for a lack of faith that he actually would do it. And instead, he says, he says you will be clean. Jesus had compassion on him. He had mercy on him. Mark 5, 19 is another story. Not just the blind, not just the leper, but now the demoniac. There met Christ, a man so possessed with the devil that it made him mad. Instead of belief in Christ or asking for healing, this spirit within the man compelled him to say, Will thou torment me before thou time? Basically, he was saying, "Don't, don't bother us, Jesus. We don't want any help. But Jesus moved with compassion, even when the guy didn't have the sense to ask for help. Jesus still moved with compassion. He helped him anyway. Luke 7.13 refers to a widow at the gates of the city with her her dead son. She's carrying out her only son and he was was gone and she was was broken. She She was falling apart. It was her only son her only solace in her old age. And it says that Jesus saw the, saw the, the mother unable to be consoled and he was moved with compassion and he restored her son. There are other occasions, multiple occasions. We find this expression many times. Very often we find it in, in the Gospels that when Jesus was among great crowds of people, it would say, over and over that as he looked at the great crowds, he would be moved with compassion over the poor, over the hungry, over the broken, over the destitute, the weak, the young, the old, the misled, and even the sinful. Moved with compassion, moved with compassion, had mercy upon them, had mercy upon them. And Jesus wept. And he stopped. And he would stand still. And he would go back. And he would pick up and he would hold and he would heal and he would embrace and he would forgive. And he would take a little bit of faith and he would great, grant great miracle. Jesus, he didn't live disconnected. He didn't walk through this life separated. He didn't, he didn't just float through. He didn't take the bypass. He went right through right through the center of the city, right through the, the mud and the mess and the brokenness and the poor and the sinful like you and I. And he didn't, he didn't surprisingly, God in the flesh, he didn't just get mad, but he got sad. And more often than not, he was moved with compassion. He was moved 
with compassion. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in his sermon on this very verse. He said this, I suppose that when our Savior looked upon certain sights in his living, those who watched him closely perceived that his internal agitation was very great. His emotions were very deep. And then his face showed it. His eyes gushed like fountains with tears. And you saw that his big heart was ready to burst with pity for the sorrow upon which his eyes were gazing. I think if we would have lived with Jesus, we would have seen that he he was very passionate. At moments, he would get very mad, justifiably so. He didn't live disconnected. And then in, in, in many other moments, you would find him weeping. The, the Bible says that when we get to heaven, there will be no more tears. Um, I, I've, always, I've always read that verse or thought about that verse as good news to me personally. Good news for us. that The suffering will be gone. There will be no more, no more tears. Um, this week, in thinking about the sadness that Jesus experienced in his life, thinking about all the moments where he was moved to compassion and moved to tears. I thought about that verse, there will be no more tears in heaven. And I thought, you know, Jesus is probably just as happy about that as I am. For in his dash through this life, he was moved with compassion into tears very often. I thought of another verse, Psalm 56, 8. I think you got that, Mike. A psalm that has been uh, comforting to Kimberly and I in moments in our life. But it says that, that God the Father takes account of all of our wanderings. could also be translated maybe sufferings. Our hard days, basically. And He puts my tears in, the capital Y is your, it means His bottle, not my bottle. He, he keeps my tears. And are they not written down in the book? So the psalmist makes note of this fact. And maybe, maybe this is just the psalmist flowery way of, of talking about the compassion of our God. Maybe it's not literal. Maybe God doesn't have a bottle for each one of our, our shed tears. And maybe he does. Whether it's literal or figurative, the sentiment is true. Amen? Though what the psalmist would have us know about our God is that, is that he... He knows every tear that we've shed to the point where He's caught them all. None have gone unaccounted for is the point. I I wonder if there's a jar in heaven full of the tears of our Savior. Not a disconnected. Not a Savior that came in so stoic that He would not be moved to compassion. Certainly, if there's, a tear, if, there's a, if there's a tear bottle in heaven with my name on it, there is one with Jesus' name as well. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we, uh, our goal here is to learn something of your Son that makes our living easier. And my suspicion is that uh, the simplicity of today's truths, the fact that your son found moments to get mad, and rightfully so, and the fact that your son very often found moments to weep and be sad 
and express compassion. My suspicion is, Father, that those are not maybe new things. There may be things we've heard before. They're not all that surprising. But, Father, would you seal those truths, the reality of those truths, to our heart? May we, may we embrace them in a new way today. So that when we, when we find ourselves in moments where we're tempted to be angry for, for no good reason, we'll be reminded of your Son and how He lived. In moments when, when we're wondering if we, if we should be angered by, by sin in our world, and by sinful men in our world, Father, that we would, be, we would be controlled by the model of your Son as well. That we would be pure in motive and holy in even our anger. Lord, I pray that the, the things in this world that slight your glory and your grace, I pray that they would anger us. But I pray we would know exactly what to do with that anger. And Lord, I pray for the moments in our life where we feel like uh, you have no idea the sadness that we're, we're experiencing. We would be reminded that you have a very good idea. And that maybe one of the reasons that you left Jesus here for as long as you did and that you didn't just send him down for the weekend was so that he would experience in full measure the sadness of this world and of moments of death and disappointment. And that, that truth, that, that single simple truth that Jesus Jesus was sad and wept and moved with compassion. That he let life affect him in all those ways. Lord, I pray that that would encourage us in our darkest moments. Thank you, Lord, for not, not leaving us without an example. And that in your compassion, you've not let us without, left us without help. You've left us your word. You've left us men of God who could lead us. And you left us the Spirit, Father, to console us and to comfort us, to guide us into truth. So I call upon all, all the benefits that you've given us as children. On behalf of this congregation, I call upon all the, the perks of your compassion that we might live our dash with all the help that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.